Good afternoon, everybody. My name is Luke Thomas, and this is the Promotional Malpractice Live Chat here on MMAfighting.com. I'm the host of this podcast. You might know me from this podcast and others on the site. I really appreciate you guys joining me today, which is, by the way, Wednesday, the 22nd, 2017. Um, today on the podcast, we'll talk about GSP's return to the UFC, which is official, but we don't know which direction he's going to go. So we'll talk about the various uh, possibilities there. We'll also get to some of the results over the weekend, UFC uh, Fight Night 105, UFC Halifax, UFC Lewis versus Brown, or uh, they got to figure that nomenclature out, by the way. We need just one nomenclature for that, but or one kind of nomenclature. But um, there's also Bellator 172, which turned out to be a bit of a dud, unfortunately, given what happened with Fedor and Mitrion. So we'll talk about that. We'll talk about Bellator. Uh, and there's just a number of other news and notes floating out there. There's some cyborg news out there if you want to get to that as well. So best place to do that, of course, is going to be in the comments section where this video is posted on MMA Fighting. Today's drink of choice, I have these, the core ones. They have, let's see, five calories a serving, containers per, per serving, excuse me, servings per container, what am I saying? Uh, about two, so about 10 or so calories, uh, which is not dreadful, and I have a terrible sweet tooth, although there is evidence to suggest that certain kinds of artificial sweeteners actually make your sweet tooth worse, but this is the place we're in, so bear with me. Okay. Yummy. First question, which apparently is what I'm looking at here, causing some consternation for reasons that remain unclear. Uh, okay, Luke. Over the past couple of years, the UFC has been letting go of many valuable commodities with the knowledge that they're likely to end up in Bellator. Several high-profile UFC fighters have already signed to the company, and top prospects like Joe Duffy and Misha Serkinov are also likely to go there at some point. I don't know if likely is the word. Certainly po <clears throat> possible is a very reasonable way to describe that. Likely, I don't know. On top of that, Bellator is currently in the process of attaining Mike Goldberg as their new color commentator. It's strange to me that the UFC went to great lengths to prevent Gilbert Melendez from going to Bellator a few years ago, but now they're increasingly letting go of notable fighters and employees. I find it very possible that in the future, Bellator could become a more formidable adversary to the UFC if they keep absorbing all of their assets. Your thoughts? I'm, I've been doing a lot of thinking about this, too. I don't know how I feel about that, only to say... Um, we're just in a very new scenario. It's different than the old scenario where Bellator versus Strike Force happened, where there was a clear number one and a distant number two, but a very, you know, or I should say, reasonably powerful number two. I don't think we're quite there yet. Bellator, on occasion, can reach good heights. They can do, I think, consistently with their tentpole events over a million dollars at the gate, uh, up to the twelve to fifteen thousand uh, dollar, twelve to fifteen thousand person in attendance. And, you know, million five and up, depending on, on who else is on the card. That is not anything to sneeze at, but it's not necessarily um, imminent doom for uh, the UFC. What the UFC, I think, is letting happen is, you know, they might not be reducing the number of shows, but um, it does appear like their global brand ambition has certainly been scaled back to some extent. Remember when they had that one picture that leaked where the the picture of the earth was in the shape of an octagon and they were like world effing domination i think they're scaling back on that uh some i don't think totally but certainly some right because it's not merely that oh they can go and 
Um, you know, I had a long talk with Marshall Zelaznik, and one of the points he made was one of the benefits of going to Brazil, I think this was over 2014 generally, but maybe before that, was that in going to those venues and in trying to take advantage of that market at the time, it was very, very hot. You'll recall they did, I think, about seven shows there that year. It helped them develop the infrastructure to put on shows at these venues that maybe didn't necessarily on their own come equipped with the kinds of things they needed to stream shows, let's say, on Fight Pass. And in so doing, that then opened up the door in their mind at the time to go to places that had similar constraints, right? South Korea might be a super advanced market, but apparently some of the venues that they were eyeing weren't before those Brazil adventures up to the task of being able to hold events there. Um, and that now is no longer the case. At least the same restrictions don't necessarily apply, even if that market was ripe in other ways. But here's the point about that. In the same way in which they're now able to go globally, they now don't need to go globally as much, depending on what their priorities are. You'll recall now that, yes, they're going to places like Chicago and Denver, Nashville, right? These sort of larger American hubs, but they're also to go, able to go to places like Hidalgo um, and um, a number of other, you know, these are important regions in mixed martial arts in terms of where the fans are and how the fans might respond, but these aren't necessary and that, that might actually think the i think the one venue there is a pretty nice venue so it's not the same exact restrictions that were in play in brazil but the point being is um they've managed to identify the fan base geographically they've managed to clear some geographic uh they've managed to clear some infrastructure hurdles with how they broadcast their product which is to say as they've opened up doors globally, they've also opened up doors internally, which allows them to rotate their product inside the North American space a little more easily as well. And I think um, to answer your question, this is sort of meandering here a little bit, when they had those global ambitions, they also, I think concurrently that went, went with that, was trying to lock up the roster of available talent to the best they could. But now that they're scaling back on that, now that they're able to really vary their show inside the North American space a little bit more nimbly, um, I think they're just going to be letting go of contracts of guys that they don't feel um, are either geographically relevant to them or expensive relative to their, you know, uh, what they offer from a Q rating, right? Or, you know, would they hold on to Gilbert Melendez now? And I, now I realize he's lost uh, several fights. But, I mean, if he was in that exact same scenario now, would they hold on to him? Probably not. I just think at the time, the the sort of Fertitta era, they had this literal global ambition for the brand itself and for what it what kind of roster they needed to accomplish those goals. The current owners have a very different perspective. They to me feel much more like event promoters, where yes, they have to you know take care of a roster and yes, they have to make sure that you know the sport is run on some kind of functional basis, but more to the point they're looking for uh, maximization of existing resources. And um, to the extent that somebody requires a significant degree of investment or that it requires a degree of investment that seems unclear to pay off, right? Nikita Krilov, you know, where is that really ultimately going to go if you want to be sort of um, brutal about the analysis? Now, he may end up wanting to be the best light heavyweight in the world at some point, but I think they're thinking to themselves, probably the juice isn't worth the squeeze here. Um, and because they don't care so much about making sure they have all the best fighters, some of these guys are going to slip through.
you know, uh, Kyoji Horiguchi is another one where, um, I mean, I think the UFC tried to resign him, but, you know, I think some of these guys are realizing, you know, what does it really mean to be a UFC flyweight? You got a title shot against Demetrius Johnson. He got totally outclassed. Fighting in Ryzen allows him to get paid probably good to great dollars to raise his profile in Japan to compete against talent that's going to be good, but where he'll have an advantage to look good. Um, so I think it's going to be good for local promoters on, on the one hand, and so let's say regional power players like Bellator as well. I don't know that it's going to be earth-shattering that they're going to let all these guys go, but it's also not clear to me that all these sort of like shows like One and Ryzen and Bellator, Bellator I'd put ahead of them, but nevertheless are really up to the task of, Bellator is, but some of the other ones are up to the task of like maximizing what could be coming their way. It's a complicated question with a sort of very complicated answer, and I kind of meandered a bit here, which I apologize for. All I'm sort of pointing out to you is, your question is, I find it very possible in the future Bellator could become a more formidable adversary to the UFC. They keep absorbing all their assets. They're going to absorb assets up to a point. I think at some point the UFC is not going to really let go of the core product of, of who is popular, who they really believe they can make popular. And so the so Bellator is going to make strides, have no doubt about it, but this is not the same as Strike Force that came up at a time where they were able to consolidate talent early and then hold on to it. This is a very different position where they had there was a huge gap between who had the most talent and how much of the big product, how much they want to let go of what they have. That's a very different kind of scenario versus consolidating early and holding on uh, in this, this new scenario. But, you know, we'll see what kind of inroads they can make, both signing free agents and building from the ground up. All right. And people are mad at him for asking that question. I don't know why. Uh, sympathy for Mitrione. Luke, on a scale of 1 to 10, how much sympathy do you have for Matt Mitrione after an illness caused him to miss out on the biggest fight of his career? Also, how idiotic are the dogs hitting on Fedor for not accepting another fight on just a few hours' notice? Yeah, I mean, look, I can understand. Look, I think here's why people are upset. MMA fans are used to the idea of fights falling through. They're used to, like, you know, you could see uh, Grabaka Hitman Kaposa on Twitter being like, Tony Ferguson versus <laughs> Habib Nurmagomedov is not real until they're in the cage. And I completely, who could, who could be mad at MMA fans for being scarred at this point? It, it, and, but, you know, with that scarring also comes just a basic realization like fights fall through. You know, they get that. I think what the fans in San Jose were upset about was that they had an hour to basically make a call about whether they want to return their tickets or not. And if they're already on route, Maybe you don't even know about it. Maybe you're not on Twitter like, you know, URI are on Twitter. And so they get to the venue. They find out the, the ticket window has closed for any kind of refund. And now Bellator, um, Fedor's not fighting. You know, they have a right to be upset. They, I mean, it's just, not, it's just not a great scenario. The question is, you know, did Bellator push it too late? I mean, what do you want Bellator to do, you know? Do you want them to see if they can push it, to see if they can pull out a main event and make it happen? Um, do you want them to call it early? And then, you know, Matt Mitrione says he could have fought and then everyone's bitter about it. Like there's no real easy answer. It does seem to me if Mitrione is going to the hospital fairly early in that day, you know, erring on the side of caution is there, uh, worth taking seriously, but it's just a hard, it's just a hard thing to do. You know, Matt Mitrione, I think was probably given him assurances that he could do it. And it's, um, they wanted to make it happen. They wanted to make the fight go forward. And I don't know. It's just a really terrible situation where. Here's the thing. 
like if they knew he had kidney stones early or that he was dealing with some measure of discomfort i don't know i don't i don't know i don't know exactly what really could have been done it's a very it's very easy to criticize on the outside being like oh you didn't want to tell folks until the last minute because you didn't want them to have refunds i can understand the skepticism about that but at the same time i think what they were really what the priority was was to get a fight to happen and if here's the only thing like if they felt like this was once matt here going forward if one of your headliners is complaining about medical discomfort I think days in advance now, what you should be doing is talking to other heavyweights or you know whoever the relevant other players in that weight class are, being like, look, probably a super remote chance, but if it happens, are you down to fill in? Uh, and so that way you can start negotiating ahead of time about some alternatives, right? It's one thing to say, you have a heavyweight fight, let's put a couple other heavyweight fights on the card. It's quite another to say, in advance, if something happens, are you ready to make this move? You know, And I, I don't know how... That itself comes with its own complications because what if one of the other guys finds out you're asking his opponent to jump up and not him? And it, it, there's there's no real easy answer here, but at least taking some precautions where you're not at the last minute being like, "Hey, Fedor, do you want to fight Czech Congo?" Uh, no, no, I don't. Didn't didn't plan for that at all. Um, and I'm not mad at Fedor. Fedor is like you know, he shouldn't probably shouldn't be fighting at this point. And even if he should be. He's doing the right thing by not taking that fight. Matt Matrion is a very different fight than Czech Congo. You saw that on Saturday night, how Czech Congo basically fights at this point. Um, I can completely understand why he didn't take it. I can also understand why fans would be disappointed. I'm really not super upset about it. I think the only question is here, is, and we lack a certain amount of information to properly assess it, is just how early did Bellator really know that this was not going to happen? And it looks like um, they didn't really know until it was basically too late, but... Next time, if you've got – this is the point about having – I wrote an article about it. It was related to fight fiction, but one of the key points inside the article was their skepticism about what happens in fights where older athletes are competing. And one of my theories about this – I don't know this to be true, but one of my theories is that one of the reasons why we're confused about how fights look when older guys compete is because they have non-standard complexions. Like older guys can't do the same things, things you take for granted that young guys do, old guys can't. So the bottom drops out in weird ways, and they don't they don't fight. One of my sort of key points is they don't fight with the same kind of perseverance that a kid who's 23 years old. I mean, that kid who's 23 will fight ferociously. Um, guys who are 40, they don't fight with the same kind of intensity. They don't have the same kind of intensity really anymore. So, um, And so the same kind of thing, like you just don't – when you have these old guys competing, you just don't know um, – I think from a health standpoint, when the bottom is going to drop out, they're going to be much more reluctant to to just take on all comers at that point. Like there's just a, my point is there's just a, a battery of different considerations you have to take into account when you're dealing with older athletes. And maybe some of these problems are less prevalent at heavyweight generally, but here's an example where they're not like, there's just a certain amount of baggage uh, and costs, both uh, financial and other that you have to pay. And you're dealing with older athletes and, um, you know, older athletes certainly aren't the only guys who pull out of fights late, but you know, it, it also, I mean, kidney stones, you know, like this is not something that typically has a huge impact on young men in their twenties, much more as you get older. Um, but keep be that as it may. All right. Uh, all right. I guess I can answer this one. Uh, front row, Brian, Luke, what's with all the hate directed towards you? By front row, Brian. He went on quite a tirade on Twitter, calling MMA fighting fake news and calling you a puke. You handled it pretty well. What's the beef with you and him? 
I have no earthly idea. Mike Goldberg also took a shot at you. He must have too much time on his hands now. I mean, his his jab literally didn't even make sense, so I can't even get into that. And really, I don't even want to get into this one. I mean, what do you guys want me to say? You want me to turn this into, like, you know, uh, a stand-up comedy show or some kind of, like, yo mama insult con? Getting into a Twitter war, for the most part, is just a sad and pathetic thing to do. And I, and I got into it a little bit. I'm partly guilty, but... I basically just moved on. If you want to know what the problem is, talk to him because I don't even have a problem. I'm I'm fo- I got work to do. I've got deadlines, you know. And really, like a Twitter war, man, it's like trying to goad someone into like a masturbation contest on it on a public elevator with strangers. Like there's not really a winner, and it's not really a dignified exercise with much of a point ultimately. Uh, I got better things to do. I'm too old for this, you know. I've got a radio show five days a week. I've got three podcasts or two podcasts on the MMA beat. I've got deadlines for writing work I got to do. Like, I got stuff to do, you know? So if they want to rage out, man, that is perfectly up to them. But uh, I'm not I'm not really interested in uh, jacking off in front of strangers. So there you go. Uh, okay. The state of the UFC light heavyweight division. Hi, Luke. Around ten, uh, eight to ten years ago, the light heavyweight division was the elite division of the UFC. It had the most fan interest. It was the marquee division. The most popular fighters and arguably the most exciting fights. The division featured a who's who of MMA. It had Liddell, Couture, Ortiz, Shogun, Vanderlei, Rampage, Machida, Griffin, Evans, and Bisping for a time. And an exciting up-and-comer named John Jones. How have we gone from this to the barren wasteland the division is today? It is bad when Bader and Krilov are going to be sorely missed that you have a number five ranked guy in Jimmy Manawa who has only beaten one top 10 talent. I don't really know what it is to say, except um, I just think some of these things are cyclical. I don't know that there's any real identifying factor we can point to in terms of recruitment that we aren't getting guys who would naturally fit within that weight class in a way that we maybe didn't used to, or maybe in a way that we did used to. Um, so that doesn't feel right to me. Some of these guys today, like a Krilov or a Bader, would beat the brakes off the the very best ber- versions of some of the guys we've seen before. So it's not like the talent on Jones, you know, running through it has made it a little bit less interesting as well. There are times when guys sort of dominate a space that it kind of suppresses it, and when that goes away, it, it flourishes again. I think that's probably a contributing factor as well. But I guess my only point is I don't. It's hard to pinpoint anything in how these guys find their way to the light heavyweight division, how we promote them through the light heavyweight division that tells us something is amiss in that part of the process. Um, To me, it just feels more cyclical. Um, We do know that the older athletes in the heavier weight classes tend to hang around a little bit longer. So I think there's partly some of that going on. Um, But... I don't know that there's anything in the sport that we can say, here is a cause of this. How do we combat it? I think it's more just sort of like waiting around for the next bus to come. Um, But yeah, you're right. I mean, it wasn't even the case that UFC had a great division. There was a time, of course, you know, when UFC and Pride both had great light heavyweight divisions. It was a truly standout division. Now, some of those guys probably could have gone to middleweight, and some of them did. Um, Bisping, you mentioned Vanderlei, of course. Dan Henderson went back and forth. Um, but, uh, I don't, 
I don't necessarily feel like there's some hindrance. We're always going to be at the mercy of what guys that size who are really talented might get pulled away from um, other things and go into stick and ball sports or something else. But I also believe that like this is not the end, affirmatively, of the light heavyweight division. It will it will have some brighter moments. It may take John Jones leaving. It may take several years to rebound. But I suspect over time it will. I do believe it will replenish itself. Maybe that one heyday was simply just this sort of like golden moment, this bizarre era where we had so many guys who could compete that way. Um, perhaps there was a bit of serendipity there. Maybe that's the case. I don't know. But um, suffice to say, uh, I am not convinced we are stuck with this sort of morass forever. I, I do think it will ultimately, at least in some way, some way, uh, rectify itself. But it is, people forget, you know, like the toughest divisions are clearly the lighter weight ones. You know, you can make an argument about which ones you think are the toughest, bantamweight or um, lightweight or welterweight. I would go with lightweight, but, you know, opinions vary. Um, um, but, man, 205 was for a long time the division, right? It was, it, was, it was the home of the stars. It was the home of the best fights. It was something else, and that has certainly been eclipsed. I think also the the growth of the other divisions has made it look bad. Like there was no bantamweight division before, right? Back in the, the era you're talking about, for a time there wasn't even a lightweight division. So you know uh, there was a welterweight one and that was pretty good, but part of this is that um, those guys were bigger than live stars, yes. But it's also a bit of now that we have more competition, they also don't look quite as good, you know. All right, true false. If GSP comes back and wins another UFC title, he'll cement himself as the greatest mixed martial artist of all time. Maybe. Taking that kind of time off, and let's assume he wins a title shot on his way back, either against McGregor or Bisping. It's going to be tough to argue against it. Depending, but it, it would it, all it would do would sort of like redouble. It would all it would do is. Um, bring to bear the same kind of conversation we've been having about McGregor. What's tougher to do, jump around and take big fights against very, very tough guys or stand to post and let wave after contender come? And it, it will just depend on your perspective. But certainly, you know, adding two titles and two different weight classes to his resume would make it, if not the best, right up there. Tony Ferguson's slick Granby rolls will help him escape from Habib's ironclad body lock. To an extent, yeah. Here's basically what I think. Habib's rides are incredible. Uh, I don't feel like a fresh Habib versus a fresh Tony. I'm not going to say it's not competitive because it, it, it very well could be. But I believe basically on balance, Habib's probably going to get the better of that. He's great at risk control. He's good at, uh, at distributing his weight. He's got all forms of scrambles himself. People don't realize he's a great top scrambler as well. Um, so I, I generally think that will go to his favor. The question is how much one does that take out of him? And two, at what point does that have an effect in the fight? So I guess my point is like a fresh Habib should basically be able to control Tony, I think. But once that, I mean, Tony was fresh after five rounds at altitude. That's a guy with some serious cardio. Can Habib really hang on for that? You know, Eddie Alvarez, whatever you, you want to make of his performance against Conor McGregor, was very adamant. He's like, you can wrestle for three out of five rounds. After that, you know, or you know, however you, you can wrestle for 15 minutes of a 25 minute fight. But other than that, you got to do some other things. And 
Tony can just go, 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 go all the time. I think what Habib needs to do is not merely control him, but when he's got him down and in the control position, he needs to do damage. He needs to do real damage. He needs to cut him open. He needs to rock him. Uh, you know, he needs to box his ear. He needs to. He needs to physically and metaphorically draw blood, because I don't. I, I, if you just bang on him a little bit, and then third, fourth round, he is. You know, he's still got his foot on the gas. That's trouble for Habib. You know, um, so to me, it's like, does is Tony a great wrestler? No doubt about it. Does he have tremendous escapes? I'm not going to argue against it. I don't think they're probably good enough to hang with Habib early. The question is, once Habib begins to lose some steam, all bets are off. Um, so will they help him? Yes. But the question is, enough to win? How early in the fight? It's strange that Anderson's infamous tie clinch isn't that effective anymore. No. People just avoid it for the most part. <laughs> Guys are better at fighting in the clinch. Guys are better about fighting out of the clinch. Guys also are wary of his clinch. That doesn't... No. Travis Brown, a once promising prospect, is a good example of a talented fighter with a horrible career management. You know what, man? <sighs> That's a tough one. Um, from what I... Jesus, my live chat is like blowing up. Okay. Um, bad career management. <sighs> That's a tough question to answer. And the reason why is that I do think it's like you left Alliance and you left Jackson Wink. And as I understand it, not necessarily on the best terms. And you went to Edmund and that didn't work out for a while, but you still retained the the services of great trainers like Ricky Lundell. I have a tremendous amount of respect for Ricky Lundell. We did a heel hook uh, and leg lock technique talk together. It was one of my favorite ones. Very smart guy, very dedicated professional. I really did think that Travis looked good early in that first round. I really did believe that. Uh, and it just wasn't enough in the end for reasons we've already gone over a thousand times. So like, how much of that to the current predicament is bad career management certainly a big part of it you know leaving these elite teams for maybe personal reasons but very dubious professional ones that carry in fact professional costs um you know i understand his need to get more one-on-one -on -one attention but you can bring in individual coaches for that you don't have to leave a team necessarily for that i just feel like this guy has walked a certain path where um it just feels like a lot of the things in his personal life have narrowed the scope of what is available to him professionally. And not that he has had, you know, Ricky Lundell is an elite trainer, but just being, leaving the teams in the way that he did, these things seem driven largely by personal choices. Um, and as long as that's the deciding factor, there's going to be a cost to pay. And I think you're seeing it. So your question is, with horrible career management, I don't know if management is this problem so much as, from the outside anyway, it's his own personal management as I understand it. Um, 
because I do think he's athletic and I do think he's talented and I do, do think he fought well in that first round and Edmund wasn't in his corner and whatever he was doing in camp, he was doing the right things. Like he had Derek Lewis hurt. He was doing good. He was doing well anyway. Um, but I just feel like he has made a number of private choices that bore fruit uh, professionally and now the harvest is here. Uh, Mario Yamasaki stoppage of the Brown Lewis fight was one of the worst late stoppages we've seen recently. It was really bad. It was so bad, in fact, that even Mario spoke to our own Guillermo Cruz here at MMA Fighting and even con conceded as much. Um, he sort of put it down to like maybe two or three punches. It, it, it was a little bit more than that, but nevertheless, I you know he understood it to be a uh, a bad call. And you know what? I'm going to give Mario a lot of credit, and I'll tell you why. It's because these judges, when they make bad calls, or maybe even calls they regret later, you know, after the fact, you make. You, we've talked about this before, where these judges' decisions, it's their rough draft, and they're turning it in. They might come back and be like, ah, how did I make that call? You know, we, we don't know because we, we never get a chance to talk to them. I will give Mario Yamasaki credit. Yes, he made a bad mistake, but I'll tell you what he did do. He went and he spoke to the media about it, and, you know, it's a little harder for him to see things the way we see things, but he acknowledged that he could have done a better job. And I appreciate that. This is a a public uh, official working for a state or a you know a government entity taking the responsibility to be transparent about his own wrongdoing and to talk to the media. They these don't these guys don't have to do that, and most of them don't. Uh, and I appreciate that he did. I really do. I think that means a lot. I think he learned from that. Guys make mistakes. This one, it's a pretty costly one, to be honest. But um, I will give him the credit insofar as being committed to public scrutiny because it's not easy. And uh, they're not required to do it. And when they don't do it, we have no real way of knowing what they're learning from it. We at least now have some sense of after the fact reflection from Yamasaki and that's really important. So I give him a ton of credit. Uh, can this chat get three true or falses per question? I'll do five or less. You do more than five. I won't do them. Um, Luke, is it funny or sad that the conservative right only decided to drop Milo? You know, I'm not even getting it. I'm not getting into Milo there. Everyone and their brother right now has Milo takes go read theirs. Todd Grisham, how would you grade Grisham's play-by-play -play for Sunday night's or Sunday's fight night card? This person says, quote, I thought he did rather well considering it's his first time calling a UFC show, and it feels like people are being way too hard on him, especially considering it was his first attempt on the job. Yeah, I think basically that's about right. Um, thought it started better than it ended. I think some of the stuff in that main event where he was like, Travis, get out of there, I was like, that's a little... That's not what we want. Uh, that was bad. That wasn't very good. But um, in terms of being able to ease his way through the broadcast from the various different parts of the production elements um, to calling the action where he says enough but doesn't get in Brian Stan's way. Brian Stan, of course, always does a great job. Um, I thought on those counts, he was basically good. There was just a little bit. I think what the problem was you want to let your personality shine in broadcasting with the little I've done of it for, uh, I mean, I've done a lot of broadcasting, but the little I've done on commentary, which is super difficult and I'm terrible at, um, 
it's a hard balance to strike. He'd never worked with Brian Stan before. I mean, they probably did some trial runs, but they never done one on air together. So that's tough. But the point being is you want to let your personality come to light. Like you what what you want to give a broadcast your signature, but you don't want to give it in such a way where it's over the you don't want to scribble on the screen, right? Where it becomes um distracting. And I think what wound up happening was for the most part, he kept it in bounds. There were just some moments that sort of the Tanya Harding joke, which I appreciated personally. But when you take that as a larger body of work with that, he had a couple other ones too. And then that one of Travis Brown, Travis, get out of there. You know, I was just like, okay, you need to dial that back a little bit. You need to slowly work in your personality, which is what John Anik has done. People accuse John Anik of being robotic early, and some still maintain this criticism. But to me, that was probably intentional. His thought was people. People aren't, when you start broadcasting, one of the things you may not realize this is um, people aren't ready for your personality usually. There are always going to be outliers to that where someone's personality is instantly magnetizing. Um, there are going to be scenarios where someone's personality is instantly something you gravitate to. They might be very, very funny. They might be physically attractive and they might have a gift of gab in some kind of way where you just respond to them. But in MMA, you have to remember this is this is MMA is a group where the fans will routinely pick um, membership over competency. Right? Are you an insider? Or are you an outsider? That's the number one question. More so than are you good at this job? Or are you bad at this job? And that can that can be for anything. You know, uh, from fighter to promoter to broadcaster to all the way down. Like, are you one of us? Or are you not one of us? It's very much a question there. And I think Anik was very, very wary of that early. Like, um, you know, when you first start talking to the world, A, a people might be naturally skeptical because they don't know anything about you. And then two, that's, that's a, that is a uniquely strong phenomenon in MMA. So maybe Grisham was very, very loose and trying to be jovial uh, and it backfired a little bit. And that's okay. Nothing wrong with that. It was his first time. So let's see how he does going forward. Does he dial back the personality and then slowly weave something a little bit more palatable, I'd even argue a little bit more responsible back in. Saying, you know, talking about these fights like it's a comp like you're reading a comic book, probably not the best idea. Um, but you know, I think the guy's very, very talented. He's done a lot of commentary before, uh, including in the combat sports space. I always liked him on ESPN. I thought he was really good there. Uh I'm glad to see him on the job. I thought again, generally him and Brian Stan were, were pretty great. Um just some editorializing and some personality infusion that probably needs to get, um, you know, dialed back a little bit. Someone says, I thought he did worse than Goldie. He called half guard almost mount and said the Black Beast was like 162 pounds. Even Stan had to correct him. I don't remember the almost mount part. Says Grisham is too green, maybe so. Yeah, he's got some work to do. He's got some work to do. You can see that Anik is basically your runaway choice as the number one uh, play-by-play guy. Um, okay, recent UFC releases, best of days. First, I'm assuming that Barcelona's current blight warms your heart in the most touching of fashions. Well, it was, and when I started. Uh, Uh, what is the Valencia Real Madrid score? It was two to nothing when I started this freaking podcast. What is it now? Two to one. Okay, that's something. 
I guess Ronaldo scored. That's I'll take that at halftime. We're not this isn't totally a disaster. So yes, to answer your question, yes, it warms my heart a little bit. What's the real question? Uh, what do you think about UFC releasing rising stars and top talent because of tough contract negotiations? Uh, am I wrong in feeling that UFC is trying to set a tough example for the mid-card level fighters? But going after, I think this is really, it's more just a cost-cutting issue. Not like, oh, you make a lot, we have to cut you. I, I think they're willing to pay a lot for the guys who can generate a lot. The question is, um, what is your Q rating, right? What is your general level of public popularity and visibility? And um, what do we expect it to be? What is it costing us? And to what extent does our investment in growing that make sense? And I think that that's why they're making some some more difficult choices. You know, if they put on a headlining contest, another promoter with Sirkinov versus Krilov, you and I might like it, but that's not tearing up the ratings. And I think that would be their argument. Like a lot of fans have always been like, um, do you remember the argument about like, uh, Say okay, so you may not believe this because the tide has turned dramatically. But several years ago, a lot of UFC fans used to repeat the company line about fighter pay. You know, if you want to make more money, you know, go eat what you kill. Like they would just repeat UFC talking points back to you. And there's less of that now. I think a lot of fans have changed positions where they're much more willing to repeat the idea that, like, you know, maybe I don't want to hear you cry about it, but I get it. Like. Fighters should be paid more. They don't have collective bargaining. If they had collective bargaining, they would naturally get more. And so does the space. And so I think most, or I should say more fans are aligned that way. But uh, it used to be the case that um, they would say, you know, nobody cares about the people on the prelim cards. Now, you could put Sirkinov and Krilov anywhere, but that's the kind of fighter who might be a little bit more likely to end up there. Right? Let's say for a pay-per-view, it's possible you could find them there. And the argument was always bankrupt because the argument was always, well, they're putting them on Fox Sports 1, and Fox Sports 1 is selling ads against them. So they got they have some worth. It's not true that they no one cares about them. They don't have as much as, you know, uh, a headliner necessarily, but they have some. But you get the idea. They have significant value in bulk. And I think those guys who fit in, in, in the minds of the matchmakers and the owners, the guys who have that um, space where they fit into the mold of someone who has value as a function of the bulk with everyone else, those are going to be the guys who are going to be in the chopping block, it seems to me. You know, Kyoji Horiguchi, you and I might be like, Jesus, don't let a number five guy go, you know? Or more than that, you know? Um, but they're like, Kyoji Horiguchi who? Really going to miss him? Really going to tear up the ratings for, you know, over in Japan? I mean, he might for Japan or something, but he wouldn't for U.S. audiences, you know? So... I think that's the way they're looking at it. And expect more big cuts, cuts that might surprise you. I don't think it's so much they don't want to shell out cash. They want to shell out cash with the hope of making a return on it. That's the difference. Um, Black Beast Mania. Luke, Derek Lewis is one of my favorite fighters and has been since I saw him back in 2012 when he annihilated Jared Rochalt. I remember that. Since coming to the UFC, he's gone 8-2. and two including six straight wins with seven knockouts inside the octagon. The man isn't technical. He's a little more technical than you think, but he's fun to watch due to his kill or be killed mentality and refreshing, hilarious, brutally honest interviews. He also loves steak, which is awesome. Can't argue with that. How high is his ceiling, in your opinion? Has he reached it already? Maybe. He'll always have a puncher's chance against anyone, but would you give him anything more than a puncher's chance 
against anyone in the top five of the heavyweight division, assuming he doesn't switch to a more notable camp anytime soon. Also, how remarkable do you think he can be since he is very fun and entertaining, but perhaps a little uh, too real and obscure for some people's tastes? Uh, I think he's the people's champion, right? I mean, the guy is the king of social media. Everyone was getting bitter about that black snake moan Photoshop he did. And I'm like, it's a joke, y'all. Lighten up. Who cares? God, who cares? Um, there were some people that were just crying about it. Who God who gives an F? But anyway, um, I mean, look, man, I made this point on my uh, post-fight show and on the Monday Morning Analyst too. You're right about De Tarek Lewis. Like, I thought uh, Ben Folks had a good way of describing it as well. It's like, you know, you, it feels like when you write down his skills, you could basically write them on the back of a napkin. But his record sort of shows you that there's a little bit more to the story, and I think there is more to the story. Um, there's, there's the other things that happen in about that you really have to recognize. People are wary of his power. Like, when people fight John Lineker, they don't fight John Lineker the same way they fight other guys. You know, maybe John Dodson does because it's John Dodson. But a lot of guys are very, very wary of his power. T.J. Dillashaw might have beaten John Lineker, but T.J. Dillashaw had to work around it. Rob Font had to work around it. Michael McDonald tried to challenge it and paid for it. So I think partly people realize that he is gifted enough of a power and accuracy puncher that if they don't take it seriously, they're going to go to sleep very, very badly. And that's the case for everyone, but it's especially the case with him. So I think partly he's changing how guys approach a fight. You know, Travis Brown was fighting on the outside. You know, they want the Black Beast to change that. And that tells you something. Not that he's not fighting on the outside before, but he was really fighting on the outside. So I think that's one. And I think the other thing for me is, um, you know, he's he's he has good finishing instincts. Um, obviously, we know about his power. He's got a decent array of punches. Head hunts a little bit, but um, he can split guards. He can go over the top. He can put punches and combinations together. Doesn't do a whole lot of movement, but he's physically strong. Has surprising cardio. But I mentioned this before. Um, he's a very surprisingly patient fighter. Like, he sticks to his strengths. He might have a decent armbar. You never know. I don't, you know, I doubt it, but he might. Might have a decent guillotine. He might have a decent kickboxing game, you know, more, more uh, generally. But the truth of the matter is, like, he's been in bad spots in fights and found his way out. That is a skill. If you're listing the skills of Derek Lewis, big power, blah, 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 all the things we mentioned, you have to add to that list perseverant. He can withstand pain. He can withstand flurries. He can force a guy to be patient with him, which allows him to just find more openings over time. And when he gets into trouble, he doesn't panic. He doesn't panic. He also has brutal ground, an excellent ground and pound. Um, to me, you know, I think it says something about guys. You know, I made this point before. Um, you know, when Fujita rocked Fedor, Rampage was on commentary, and Rampage was, when 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 Fedor came back, Rampage was like, "That's what a champion does. A champion comes back." And it's true, man. Like I'm not comparing Fedor to, to the Black Beast, but I guess what I am saying is, you re I mean, being perseverant is a real thing. It's a real thing, and I believe that um, it'd be one thing if he was a power puncher and a front runner. He's not. He comes back from bad spots in ways you don't expect. And all he needs is a small moment to affect change. And boom, the whole thing collapses for his opponents around him. It's pretty remarkable. 
All right, Eat My Shorts writes a thousand questions. We're not going to get to all of them. Steven, uh, no, I'm not going to skip that one too. We're going to skip the first two from Eat My Shorts because they're all the same. Hey, so-and-so's fighting so-and-so. Who do you like? And I appreciate you putting in questions, but you got to live with these a little bit. Um, Megan Anderson's comments on facing Cyborg. A week or two ago, Megan Anderson gave an interview to ESPN where she expressed that she did not want to fight Cyborg yet for two reasons. First, she knew she was needed to, excuse me, she knew she needed to hone her craft over one or two fights before facing someone like Cyborg. Second, she knew that it would be a big payday match and did not feel that her current profile was enough to really reap the financial benefits from the bout. What did you think of Megan Anderson's reasoning in the interview, which you hopefully had read before the question? I had not, but I'll take your word for it. And do you think it is smart for fighters to be so direct about their thought process when discussing why they don't want to fight other top-level fighters as it seems the ducking accusation is thrown around quite lightly at times? Well, you're right about that. I think Megan Anderson and her management are absolutely correct. We have talked about it before. If you are a Fight Pass customer, go and watch her fights. She is a little green. I don't know how else to say it. It doesn't mean she's not talented. doesn't mean she won't be a champion one day. doesn't mean there aren't a bunch of things she does already really well. All those things are true. She is, I'm sorry to say, a little green. Her defense needs a lot of work. Even in fights where she wins, she gets tagged badly. Um, and that is something to be worked on. That is a kryptonite, kryptonite aspect uh, for any potential fight with Cyborg. It'd be a very bad idea. Very bad. So to me, they have the right response to say, you know, look, if they're going to make this fight, we want to be at a point where we can, you know, maximize the financial returns. And two, maybe we're just not ready to fight her yet. They're not. And there's nothing wrong with saying that. There's nothing wrong with saying that. She's being pushed that direction because there's no other women really to consider in that division. So it's like understandable that I think fans and other media observers would be like, well, Megan Anderson's here. I get that. No problem. But she's just asking, like, is she ready for this level of talent? No. No. And you might be like, well, you know, are Holly and Jermaine? No, but Holly and Jermaine have worked out the full depth of their game. Like, if you have a chance to work out the full depth of your game and you're still not ready, well, then you're just not ready. But I feel like Megan Anderson's getting better every single fight, man. I feel like she's becoming a better striker. I do feel like her defense is getting better. I feel like her ground uh, uh, scrambling is getting better. I feel like her takedown defense is getting better. Like, in a way where you can see this is still a developmental process. So I get it, man. Everyone wants to see, um, you know, a fight that Megan Anderson, when she's moving forward, she's tearing people to pieces. But she, there's some work to be done. There's some work to be done for sure. And I think credit should go to her management and her for having the maturity to recognize that um, they still want to be in the lab a little bit. You know, I really respect that. I talked to Paul Felder yesterday. And he made an interesting point because I asked him about going to Duke Rufus. And what he said was, I was like, that was, you know, you're not ranked in the top 15. It's a very tough division. Um, what do you want to do next? That was a sick win over Alessandro Ricci. And his answer was, I just want to fight anyone. And he made a, this was a great point. He, he was like, um, I know that the UFC likes it when you call out somebody, but uh, I just changed camps, and one of the benefits you sort of noted about working, me had nothing but positive to say about the East Coast super friends, you know, Ricardo Almeida and, and um, you know, 
all those guys, Eddie Alvarez and everybody, and 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 Frankie Edgar and Edson Barboza. He had nothing but good things to say about him, but I guess he feels like he gets a little bit more individual attention at Dukes, and more than that, like Paul Felder's got his own style, but you saw that up elbow. That's straight from Thai boxing, and man, Duke Rufus is a really talented striking coach and has a great background in Thai boxing. And so the point being was. He was like, look at what I was able to do after just one camp, the way he was able to make you – know, Paul Felder's always really good about stepping on the gas with his offense, but it's a little bit of a harder trick for him to continue to step on the gas and then make great offensive choices. And he usually makes good offensive choices. I thought he was making great ones here, really good ones here, especially as Alessandro was um, you know, changing stances. And then he threw the up elbow because he said – and I was, I was right about this uh, – that – uh, Richie was stepping in really hard with that jab, so he wanted to meet him with it. He was doing like a boxing jab, not an MMA jab, which is a little bit more, it's less It's less uh, tethered in some ways. Point being was, he goes, I'm still working out my game. I don't, I want to fight a ranked guy when this process is over. I'm still, I'm still figuring things out a little bit. Now, Paul's a little bit more advanced in his, in his age and his career, but it's the same kind of idea, like, let me fight those people when this process is basically over. And and some might call that ducking, and some might be like, well, when's the process over? It's an inexact science. I grant you. It's very frustrating to hear somebody say that. I grant you. But I think someone like Megan is probably owed that. You know, you're just going to throw it to Cyborg next. That feels – and, yeah, I know these people get out there and they say all kinds of things. Like, oh, I want to fight so-and-so. I want to fight so-and-so. I, I get all that. And it gets the fans riled up too and the media riled up. But I get it, man. I, I completely side with her on this one. Interesting question. The check is in the mail. All right. At the beginning, Zufa took on huge losses to keep the sport alive. Then the sport wasn't big enough for fighters to make big money. Investing in a global strategy will be better for the fighters in the future. Quote, we give them health insurance, a new fitness center, and the best anti-doping program. I like how anti-doping is part of like health and wellness. That's a total joke, but okay. Who else does that? Now, after the sale... To WMEIMG, a large portion of revenues generated by the sport will go to wealthy investors that finance the purchase of the organization. After 15 years of making ever-changing claims um, of why Zufa is entitled to a large majority of profits, will the structure of the deal to sell UFC to WMEIMG end up being the most detrimental to the sport and exploitative to the fighters? You know, it's interesting that we brought this up. I have Mike Bisping on my radio show today. I'm very curious to talk to him because, look, I've made this point very, very clear. Uh, I've got nothing against St. Pierre looking for big money fights. I mean, the guy's done everything that's ever been asked of him by this company and was, I would think, at one point not necessarily treated all that great. Him asking for a big-ass payday, I can get that, man. I can totally understand it. Same with Michael Bisping, man. He doesn't have much time left, and he's been quite honest about that. you know. And here's a guy who's not even a middleweight who could generate massive bucks uh, for him, and um, – and he could get the biggest payday of his career right at the end of it. Like he's this is the his his one window to finally make money. Like I'm not mad at him for trying to get some money. Like he should do that. You know I get it. But that doesn't mean that we have to do that. That doesn't mean that you have to do that or I have to do that. And um, but here's the issue: if you make arguments against the GSP, and I've made I actually wrote them down. Let me pull them up for you. I've made a few arguments. Let me just run through these because it, it answers your question pretty pretty nicely, I think. I hope. Okay. 
like why there's lots of reasons why you might want to make a gsp versus this being match two of the reasons i just stated it's good for both guys both good guys in the sport that's a great reason two i don't think you can guarantee this but it might be just a great fight like it could be really compelling action i also think there's an equal chance it could be quite a dud and it could be in the end it could also be something like canelo versus khan where it's like oh yeah that's why we didn't do that fight because one guy was never really a part of this weight class and the size disparity was too much and that didn't make a lot of sense in the end. You could get that as well, but you could also envision a scenario where the fight was compelling, right? And you could say it'll do, you know, just gangbusters. At, uh, people really want to see it. They want to see two stars clash. It meets some kind of market demand. Those are like really concrete ideas that have short-term, immediate, impactful relevancy on your life as a fan. To the point where if they announce it, you might even consider, gee, do I want to buy tickets for that? You know, you see what I'm saying? Like, this really impacts your life as a fan. If you're a fan of MMA, that has a direct impact on your life. Uh, and perhaps a, a big one. Right? Think about the arguments against the fight. Here's just a few of them. Number one, if you go and look back at articles around 2006 and the 7, I've been researching this. One of the core bedrock principles that you see people say about why UFC is growing and why it might be better than boxing. I'm not here to say it's better than boxing. I'm here to say that's what they were saying. It's like, hey, man, the best fight the best. Like, champions can't duck contenders anymore. You know what? And you get turnover from it, and guys have losses on their record, but there's such an integrity to the process. This fight undermines that. It undermines the core bedrock of what people were saying in the first generation of post-Ultimate Fighter fans about what really appealed to them in that product. I think undermining that's a bad idea. You could say it undermines the notion of championship priority. Why should I care about your belt when you don't? If you don't want to defend your belt, okay, I get it, but you should relinquish it. If you're telling people it's okay to not defend your belt and do other things, why would a fan ever get the idea that it's something to be taken seriously? And forget Bisping and GSP and everybody else. How about the idea of WME creating weight classes where there's no real contenders like women's featherweight or just adding a thousand interim belts? Right, all these things contribute to that notion generally. It's not merely these two participants, but if you make that fight, you are doubling down on that. It erodes consumer faith in the brand. If the faith in the brand is based on some idea of they make the fights that are supposed to happen and now they don't, you begin to erode some of that. Uh, and I'll, let me finish some of these. Uh, by the way, Bisping also has a super compelling contender. It's not like you want to make Bisping versus GSP because he doesn't want to have anyone for him at middleweight. No, there's a row of killers waiting for him. Uh, GSP, by the way, has other lucrative options. He could go the McGregor route and fulfill a lot of the same responsibilities. That fight has its own consequences and costs, but you get the idea. It could create unnecessary divisional chaos. Um, people are like, oh, well, WME has these needs. WME has those needs. Right, WME does. My job is, as, a, as a media member is not to worry about WME's needs. It is to speak to different priorities that the sport might have. So I, I can't be burdened in thinking about things as though I'm an executive in one of those meetings, I have a very different vision uh, and responsibility, frankly, to talk about the sport. Um, there's no guarantee the fight will be good. What value is there in being a number one contender if it doesn't really get you anything in the end? What, how might that change fighters' priorities over time if they realize um, that they don't really necessarily need to go that far if they can just rattle a saber and be somewhere in the middle to the back of the line and still get a title shot? What is the real value in taking the tough fights to move along there and then ultimately it's not even about this decision what does this decision give birth to what are we doing fundamentally with the slippery slope here about getting away from the perfect adherence to the architecture to now where we're not even awarding 
title fights to a very deserving contender who was ready to rock, um, where we're messing now with a divisional calendar, we're creating chaos, right? What, what, what other things will happen as a consequence of this? This in itself might have some consequences. What do they give birth to down the road? How far is this going to erode everything? But here's the core nature of those arguments. It's all about what happens in the future down the line to an extent unpredictably. This is the problem with what happens when people propose these super fights. They never consider some of the long-term ramifications that are hard to, in some ways, know, in some ways hard to identify, because you can identify um, there's going to be tickets on sale and a live gate and da-da-da-da. We could put it on the calendar if we make the super fight. These immediate bursts of short-term validation that ultimately undercut the bedrock of what makes the product and what it has been. And so it's just less compelling as an argument, even though the, even though all these arguments against GSP versus Bisping might be right, they're somehow less compelling because I'm asking you to consider the potential consequences, what it might give birth to. And I don't think fans and media observers and really the community generally takes those arguments as seriously as they should. I think ultimately what they decide is, hey, look, if it's going to make money, it's going to make Mike rich, it's going to make GSP rich, people can wait. But when you start... When you start abandoning, not really in degree, but almost kind, the best practices of divisional and sport maintenance, you create some problems in the immediate and especially in the long term. And I kind of feel like that will get lost because I'm asking you just to imagine. So to answer the question, um, Will this WME-IMG deal end up being the most detrimental to the sport and exploitative to the fighters? I don't know for any kind of certainty, but I do worry about matchmaking that only considers the immediate validation and the, and ignores many of the long-term consequences. Thinning divisions and a smaller roster. Jesus, this, all the questions are about this. Um, there have been a lot, excuse me, there's been a recent emergence of French articles citing UFC fighters discontent with the new regime. Something that stuck out to me was Valerie Letourneau's comments on the new owners looking to cut back to one, excuse me, wanted to eliminate one third of their roster. So I went ahead and looked up the upcoming UFC schedule. Of the six events they have previewed on their site, only one men's flyweight bout has been scheduled and one women's fight per card. My question, do you think there's some truth to this? Yeah, we've been over this already. Holly's appeal. Hey, Luke, most people's reaction to the news that Holly will appeal her loss was to scoff at it, and I considered it futile, and initially I shared that view. However, the issue is actually much less subjective than most appeals. All of the judges had Holly losing by one point only, and I think this has been unanimous that Jermaine Duran and me should have had at very least been deducted one point for her two illegal strikes. Therefore, it would be hard to dismiss Holly's appeal. Can you see a successful appeal? No, I cannot. Usually the only way in which the judges will review it is under the criteria that there was literally an uh, arithmetic error, right? Oh, I didn't carry the one or something. Or that there is some sort of evidence of collusion, like literal malfeasance within the, um, the uh, judges uh, who scored the fight. Like just trying to argue their scoring criteria um, or argue about something a referee didn't do that he didn't necessarily have to do. Good luck. They're, they give extremely wide latitude to judgment, and they give very wide latitude to a referee 
Like a referee didn't do something he didn't have to do. Now, maybe you think he, he and I should have, but he didn't. How are you going to challenge that? Good luck. You're going to need it. The who wins? Lewis versus Nganu. I would give it to Nganu, but I'd love to see it. Man, I would love to see it. Uh, GSP next fight. Dana White recently said that GSP can pretty much have any fight he wants from 155 to 185, assuming he can make 155. What do you make of George's chances against the top people in those three divisions? All right, against McGregor, I give him a very good chance. He'd be a I, – I don't know what he would look like exactly a lightweight, but presumably he would be a big one. I think he would have relative amount of ease getting McGregor to the floor and then holding him there, um, potentially even submitting him. Um, against Tyron Woodley, I don't think so. I think Woodley would have strong takedown defense and would crush him. And against Bisping, someone's asking why I think it's a sham fight. I have already explained. But – um, but yeah, I think his chances are good as you go up or sorry, bad as you go up, but, um, you know what? St. Pierre's incredible, right? One of the best all time. Maybe him taking all this time off and shredding his other ACL and this time off is not nearly as disqualifying as some might presume it to be. Uh, let's see. It's a question about Shaman Moraish. I have not followed the saga, but apparently it's quite sad. I'm sorry to not answer it. I don't know enough about it to have any kind of real comment. Does Derek Lewis behind Connor have the best post-fight interviews? Connors are um, Connors are almost like Shakespearean, where it's a guy taking a stage and speaking in a manner reflective of such as such. Derek Lewis is just uh, <laughs> someone at the barbecue keeping it real. You know what I mean? They're very different kinds of, um, you know, imagine going to a, a friend's barbecue and Derek Lewis is like that guy that just kind of keeps it real there. There's a certain amount of sh showmanship to what McGregor's doing that I don't think Lewis is trying to or even could do if you wanted to, but they almost arrive in similar positions because we're sort of shocked by what appears to be either candor or the appearance of candor. We're shocked by the statements for their how unusual and out of, uh, you know, the norm they are. But, yeah, I mean, Derek Lewis is a treasure. Connor is too, you know. As well as his amazing troll game on Instagram – and carrying around a toy belt, LOL, will it get him into trouble soon? I don't think it'll get him into trouble. If anything, it's working for him. Have you all seen King Mo on Instagram? Like, I'm not kidding. Every day, and I'm not exaggerating this. Every day he posts a different Photoshop of an overweight African-American gentleman, some cases morbidly so, with Rampage's face pasted on top. Um <laughs> He is committed to the bit. I will put it that way. It's kind of funny to watch. All right. For O fans after Saturday? That's an interesting question. Um, do they have obligations to the fans who could not receive funds for this past Saturday's event? Announcing the fatal fight cancellation mere hours before the actual event is to start. Anyone that had bought a ticket to the event needed to ask for a refund before the actual event began in order to receive a refund. Otherwise, they had to go to the event to get any use out of the ticket. 
Fedor versus Mitrion was the main attraction and one of the two fights on the card that was receiving any sort of promotion. Does Bellator owe it to their fans that were shafted this past Saturday? I understand the inevitable cards subject to change fine print, but if something similar had been pulled by the UFC, would they be receiving far more hate and would be a bigger story than what is currently for Bellator? It'd be a bigger story because the UFC is a bigger story and they have typically bigger fighters. So probably to some extent, I, I never really understand Bellator to UFC comparisons. They're they're not the same kind of organization. They don't they don't do all the same things. They have a very different business model, and they're vastly. I mean, there's an almost an infinite space between them in terms of, um, you know, their level of dominance in the market. But be that as it may, I mean, look, what could they, I mean, you want them to give money back? I mean, I, I don't know what you want them to do. They're going to try and bring another show back to San Jose. I think if they do, they need to stack it. Um, you know, maybe they could lower the price points on cards or the tickets as a as a goodwill gesture. They could do some kind of free events in town that week. They can just do something for the folks who, I mean, they can't go back individually and pay people who feel like they were shafted, although you think that they probably should. But I think what they can do is they can just, you know, but they've been good to that San Jose market. I mean, let's be, let's be honest about that. But in keeping with that tradition, you know, create a week full of free events and access to fighters and stack a card and make sure that in case something happens, you have contingency plans in place, as aforementioned. Um, but beyond that, I don't really know what's realistic or, uh, you know, what do you expect a corporation to do? I, I get being upset, believe me, but it's just realistically, it's seems out of reach beyond that. And I, I think they will. And, and Coker has already said, by the way, he's trying to go back to San Jose. So there's that too. All right. Have I heard anything about the Diaz brothers? Nope. I will let you know if I do though. Al Iaquinta, what are your thoughts on Al and his contract situation? Uh, I guess real estate in Long Island isn't what it's cracked up to be. I mean, he comes back to the exact same one he left on where he had a ton of problems with. You know, it's got to be tough. It's got to be tough. Um, don't sign long contracts if you don't think there's going to be a, long, a chance of you fulfilling them. Um don't put yourself in a position where you have no leverage. If at all, you can avoid it. Easier said than done. But basically, he was in a position where he had no leverage. He had no better options. He had no better opportunity. He had no way to affect change. And so he was the one who had to fold. It's a fairly simple way to look at it, I gather. But if you don't, if you're going to walk away from something, you'd be totally prepared to walk away or walk away knowing that you have an ace in the hole, and I'm glad he's back, you're glad he's back, I'm sure the UFC is glad he's back, but they weren't going to bend for him. They're, they are hard. you got to be Conor McGregor level to leverage them, man. It's Other than, if you're not Ronda or Conor or GSP or something like that, you're not, you're probably not going to leverage them. And so let that be a lesson to you. Do things that are to your benefit. Sign shorter deals, try to get more upfront money or guaranteed money, um, whatever that you can reasonably do to fix these problems, do it because sitting out, uh, it's not really going to work for you, unfortunately. And without, you know, without some kind of, um, collective bargaining, basic protection, right?
Brian Ortega. Do you know what's happening with him? I've not heard anything about Brian Ortega. Who is suffering more in Connor's absence? UFC and pay-per-view buys or MMA fighting and clicks? Uh, probably UFC. We can get clicks. Remember that dude who um, who was doing the break dance and they got kicked in the face? Like that tore up the uh, traffic for us. Like, uh, yeah, it's good to have Connor and Ronda, but we can, you know, we can get traffic from all kinds of crazy places. Podcast. Uh, MMA purists. Hey, Luke. Hello. MMA purists like Joe Rogan, Robin Black, and many more have proposed changing the rules so fighters aren't inhibited by things such as a cage, rounds, or strike restrictions. Some suggest having them fight in an open field, <laughs> no rounds, and having them fight to a finish. It's called Barge Fighting Championships. Hit up John Snowden about it. Do you agree with any of these ideas, and do you think they are plausible? Well, I agree with their basic premise of what they're uh, suggesting, which is that these rounds that we have, these rules, this uh, what is this scored, how is that scored, these are all largely uh, either unhelpful or in their – I don't want to speak for them, but I think what they might say is these are essentially artificial ways of determining who the winner is. I mean, it's a logical conclusion you would draw. People, for example, people would um, – Argue in BJJ, hey, this point system is bunk. Let's do sub only. And I've argued if you're going to do sub only, that's fine, but you need to do sub only, no time limit. That works in BJJ, right? That totally works. That legitimately is a thing, but it's just not. It's not. It's not doable in MMA. The health consequences, I think, would probably be significant, and if they're not, the optics would be bad. Part of what makes prize fighting what it is is that it is palatable. There is at least some safety or enough safety to enough people with enough expertise that it's allowed to go on. Um, I don't think taking fighting to its ultimate conclusion about the only way to decipher who's better is to eliminate impediments. I, I get that. I think that's, that's, that's fine. It's just not realistic because of the costs that could be associated with it. But if you're trying to find who the better fighter is, there's an argument to make that you should you know, take away the gloves, right? Take away time limits. Take away referees and just see who wins. Problem is sort of very bad things might happen as a consequence, uh, and the sport might go away forever. But I understand what they're saying. You know, I don't, don't think that part's crazy. Expectations for GSP's return. Hi, Luke. How do you think GSP will look after the time off? To what extent will age and ring rust play a part in his return? Do you think he will be able to successfully to be successful? Excuse me in today's UFC, or does it all just depend on how they match him up? Probably the latter, but the first part I would say is, uh, you know, I'm expecting some level of degradation from what we were accustomed to, but at the same time, I think the one we saw at, against Johnny Hendricks or something like that against Nick Diaz was a guy who was probably not performing up to his best there either. So taking away the pressures of what caused his exit, giving him time off to just train, and heal injuries, although he had another one with the ACL, but generally speaking, you know, fight at, a, you know, he's not in these insane camps. Um, I suspect he's been probably pretty good about preserving his body and keeping up with the martial arts, but, uh, you know, Reed West is not a thing that affects everyone all the time, but it affects most fighters most of the time. I suspect it will affect him to some degree. So I'm expecting him to not look as good as he did in, uh, before he left, but I don't know that I'm expecting a major drop-off because um, of just who he is and how he trains and how he takes care of himself. I think he will remain competitive. And that's, you know, 
look, even if he's 80% of what he used to be, that's still pretty good, right? Pretty good. All right, it is 2.15. Let us go to the Twitter machine if we can. You want to send me a uh, tweet, you can do it at SBN Luke Thomas and use the hashtag chat rappers. It's all explained in the post below, and uh, I will take a look at them. All right. How dare you say De Derek Lewis is not Shakespearean? I'm not saying it's not poetry in the end, but, you know, it's not written in iambic pentameter. Um, what are your thoughts on the UFC now waiting for much longer to announce headliners? I guess they're having problems getting guys to sign up as early as they used to. There is not nearly as much loyalty to the UFC brand as there once was, which explains both why guys like Horiguchi might, you know, go to greener pastures in um, Japan and why it might be hard to get guys to sign up for things when they're not feeling 100% or whatever the case may be. Based on Schaub's current success in comedy, if he rejoined the UFC, how big of a draw could he be? A headliner? Yeah. I mean, I don't know about the comedy stuff. I don't know how much, I don't know enough about that to speak about it intelligently, but uh, I mean, he's got, you know, fairly big following. I think he would be, you know, I think he would be, a, yeah, yeah, he could headline shows, sure. I don't know about pay-per-views, but free stuff. Did Fedor save or even enhance Bellator's professionalism outlook by not accepting a last-minute replacement? That's a good question, actually. Yeah, I think a lot of folks would have been like, oh, they did the last fight and they put the okey-doke on uh, the viewers and Fedor himself, and that's a bad look. You know, it's it's a it's a frustrating look for him to not take a fight if you're a fan, but yeah, there might be something to be said for that. How do you see the fight between Gunnar Nelson and Alan Joban going down? I think I see Gunner trying to take him down. And I think Gunner's probably going to be successful. Are there any prospects outside the UFC that are flying under the radar fans and deserve more attention? I'm sure there are. Contact Smoogie on Twitter and Kaposa. They will be plenty of help for you guys. That's what they do. What do you think of a UFC university? Students could start training young and start a career in MMA. I don't think that's a good idea of a promoter starting a university to recruit talent. Um, let's see about this one. I can't really see it. Does Dana say anything more indicative that Dana hasn't fought than when he says, don't leave it to the judges? Uh, I don't think that's indicative of not fighting. I think that's just indicative of having a promoter's interest in saying that, which we went over last week. For Madrid's top three, would you prefer BBC, uh, which is, of course, Bale, Benzema, and Cristiano, or Cristiano, Bale, and Morata? Uh, I will stay with the original. I think that Cristiano, Bale, and Morata is a great combination, but there's been a little too much Benzema hate that I don't buy into. Um, do I know how to swim? Yes. Has the UFC gotten lazy or complacent with their presentation and marketing outside of Connor and Ronda? Mm, don't know if I've seen enough of that yet. Certainly that 209 poster was a sham. But when you're there live, it doesn't feel very different. feels very much the, sh the live show has not taken a hit. Weird question. Why does John Jones get all the flack for UFC 151? 
but Henderson is the one who hit an injury. Boy, isn't that a great question? Uh, true, false. Machida slept with one of the USADA guy's wife. How is he suspended for two years? Yeah, I don't know. I really don't know the answer to that. I don't know what to tell you about that. We've, I mean, Ian Kidd's done a pretty great job over at Bloody Elbow discussing this. I've talked about it at length. Um, I don't know. What, I don't know what to tell you anymore. What's your take on Gavin Tucker's showboating, i.e., posting? Excuse me, pointing at Cecilia's guy and shouting yes. Um, don't care. Don't care at all about. I have him on my show today too. Don't care at all about showboating. Doesn't bother me. I think that we have basically decided as a fan base to have our own versions of what kind of unprofessionalism we tolerate, and the only real contour it seems to follow is our own subjective sense of justice and right and wrong, which is to say there is none. So um, I don't care. Three months along, how is your new Google Pixel XL working out? Best phone I've ever had. Only uh, I had to get a second one because the first microphone failed, and then uh, the only glitch in this one is if you open up like a product where you're trying to text, like an app, let's say WhatsApp, sometimes you have to like not close the app, but you have to get out of the keyboard and then back into the keyboard for it to work. That's not all the time, and it's rare, but it's the only hiccup. Oops. Let's see. Uh, Habib's wrestling versus Tony's BJJ. How do you think this one plays out? I suspect Habib's wrestling will win early. Over, but but by the way, Tony doesn't just have BJJ. Like we think of that because he takes risks with it. You know, he'll flop to his back to secure uh, a, a darts or something like that. But he's got great wrestling too. He comes from wrestling. That's his background, as a matter of fact. His background is not striking or jujitsu. His background is wrestling. You saw that with his takedown defense against. Um, against um, Javel Dos Anjos. And for me, uh, I I think it's a very big mistake to not take that into consideration. Uh, God, Valencia is still up two to enough, two to one. Kill me, bro. the tweeters what do you make of the ufc censoring Derek lewis's post-fight interview um i find it terribly unsurprising that a corporation would want to keep that kind of thing from being part of the public consumption to the extent that they can limit it um, has fake news influenced MMA media? It's influenced every form of media, varying degrees. I don't think it's a huge problem in MMA, but um, certainly it's part of it. A uh, quick question regarding GSP's return. I'm a little surprised that no one is discussing the possibility of him potentially going for history by becoming a three-weight world champion. I say no one, but perhaps some people are. I just haven't heard them. Certainly it hasn't been discussed widely. I'm not even sure GSP and his team are considering it, but if I was him, I would be. So this would involve fighting Bisping first and then dropping down to fight Connor at lightweight, or the other way, I suppose. 
Perhaps given the large weight jump between these fights, it would be impractical, which is why it's not being discussed or considered. Connor's break, however, may give GSP added time to transition between those fights. Certainly, it won't be easy, particularly the Bisping fight, in my opinion. But if he gets past Bisping and fights Connor, that is a very winnable fight for George, in theory. And that fight, with the added stakes involved, will be absolutely humongous. I think no one is talking about that because he's not even a two weight world champion right now, much less a third one. Uh, and as you point out, jumping two weight classes down or up is significantly difficult. In fact, going up one weight class was primarily his main reason for not wanting to fight Anderson Silva low those many years. That it would take time to get his body to go up there and that it would take time for his body to go back down. So, like, I don't think anyone thinks that George St. Pierre is a bad fighter. Unless you've won uh, two titles first, which is... No given, considering you've torn both your ACLs and you've been out for almost three years, and you want to go fight outside of your natural weight class. I think jumping to three is, uh, you know, a bridge too far at this juncture, right? That's all I'm saying. No question for me this week, Luke. Just a suggestion. Would really love to see the chat extended to two hours. If you agree, please wreck this to show Luke. Thanks, dudes. While I appreciate the support, I don't know how I'm interested in doing that. One, 90 minutes is plenty, I feel like. But I guess if there's a ton of support, we can go that direction. Uh, interim belts. Luke, with all the recent upcoming interim belt fights, do we know if there are any financial rewards in winning one? Uh, Pay-per-view points, extra cash. Thanks. Um, I, I believe if you get the interim title, yes, but I need to verify that, and I will. I'm going to 209, so I'll talk to some folks out there. It's a good question. I want to know for sure. Um, how far do you think Derek Lewis can go? Can he beat Stipe? Hard for me to see that. Kane, same thing. Verdum, if he can keep it on the feet, certainly. I think those those top guys, it's going to be hard for him. The very, very top. But everybody else, it's fair play. When will the UFC take Connor's second belt? Look, the UFC waited a full year to take Connor's first belt at featherweight. Do you think they will wait this long with Connor's second belt at lightweight? With Habib and Ferguson fighting for the interim belt in two weeks, it's possible the winner would be ready for a fight midsummer. How does this factor into their decision? Man, it's a great question. Uh, I haven't thought much about that. Well, he only won it in November, so I mean, it'd be really unfair to take another belt from him anytime soon, but. Um, God forbid if he gets catastrophically injured, um, if he takes that Mayweather fight and they don't set it up for 2018 and he's gone for 18 months, I could see that, you know, uh, I, I could see it at a point where if the interim champ, whoever winds up being Tony or Habib ends up defending it a couple of times, right? I think then they might say, okay, enough's enough. Um, or maybe they'll just be ruthless about it and they'll be like, you have another year, right? You didn't want to defend, you want it in November? Okay. Defend it by November or December or something. And, uh, and we won't take it, but th that's your timeline. It's hard to really say what the UFC is going to do here. I was surprised by the way they took it the first time. I think most of us were not surprised so much that they took it, just how they took it. I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be too rigid in my expectations about what could happen here either. Because there's no guidelines, either for the fighters or the UFC. 
It's just their whim and what Conor McGregor can reasonably do to them if they do it or whatever the case may be. So, uh, Cyborg USADA disclosure issue. Regarding today's post on Bloody Old by Ian Kidd, it's also by Mark Ramundi on this one. Is it fair to continue with Cyborg claiming victim status when she clearly did not disclose what she was taking at the time of her sample being taken? Here's how it works with Cyborg, yeah? Y'all like my Dan Gable shirt? Pretty cool, right? Um, here's how it works. There is no amount of evidence at this point she can present to silence critics. It's not possible. Because for all the many years where she was not testing positive for anything, since that one incident in Strike Force, uh, everyone, not everyone, there have been lots of people who said, ah, you know what? She's cheating the system. And then USADA came along, and she they, they still came up. She's cheating the system. I don't know how she's cheating but she's cheating. And here we have a situation where she is flagged for something. She is ultimately exonerated by USADA, the very group who the anti-dopers believe is the savior to the sport for reasons that remain unclear to me. But nevertheless, oh, USADA's here. They will clean up the sport. Well, here they are, and they are exonerating her. And they are exonerating her with their own process that they put in place. And yes, it is relaxed in certain respects relative to what USADA does in other leagues, although in other leagues, um, their, their rules are more relaxed compared to ours, right? I mean, um, I think in track and field, they don't announce anything until after the investigation is done. So that would have saved her all of this completely. But be that as it may, for to retroactive uh, therapy use exemptions, it's a little more relaxed than the Ultimate Fighting Championship. But the point being is, by the process that was available to her and every other fighter in the UFC, not merely her, this is not some special rule for her, um, she submitted for a retroactive uh, therapeutic use exemption and the process in place exonerated her. She completely uh, uh, used the avenues available to her as every other fighter in her position could have as well. And they have said uh, it's okay that the medicinal evidence here outweighs any concerns about uh, doping. And it's still not enough. It's never going to be enough. Here's what we know for sure. She's negligent. No doubt about it. She's negligent. We also know that one time in the past, at least, um, she had uh, used a performance-enhancing drug. Beyond that, we don't know anything. Beyond that, the only thing you can really say is what defines your own prejudices. Maybe you think she's totally guilty. Maybe you think this has been a witch hunt. Maybe you're somewhere in between. But it's never going to end. The point about this is it, do it does not matter um, what evidence she shows the world. There will always be a sample of fans who find it unsatisfactory. Uh, new eye poke rule. Is it just me or did the refs ramp up on starting to enforce the new eye poke rule this weekend? Not just this weekend, the one before, since 2017. I feel like I've seen it a lot where referees are warning guys to reel it back in. Seemed like the refs gave fighters way more warnings than they did in the last couple of weeks. I'm following this new rule because I got into MMA because of Ian Jacek. I'm Polish, and she loves to keep those fingers out. By the next time her next fight happens, I'm worried the new eye poke rule may be overly enforced. She'll get nabbed a point or two and end up losing a decision. Ah, if she wins or loses, it probably won't be because of that. She does do this, but remember, you can do this, you can do that, or you can just sort of put the fist out. So you just can't be level with the hands. Um, I think she's a top-level professional. She may win or she may lose. I don't think she'll lose a point or two because of that. She, she will make the necessary adjustments. Um, Okay, thank you so much for watching, guys. I really appreciate it. You can email me at luke.thomas at espionation.com with any questions. I'll try to put them in the chat next week or answer them time permitting. Uh, please give it a thumbs up, share it around, and uh, you guys are the best. Until next time, stay frosty.